Amen. Hey, we're in the book of Acts, talking about realignment, uh, realigning our church with the way church is supposed to be, the realignment. But I want to talk to you this morning about fighting Pharisees, and what does it mean to remove the religious man from your relationship with Jesus? Uh, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know if you're really, truly saved? And are there things you have to start and things you have to stop to do to be saved? I think it's kind of troubling uh, today how many things muddle the way to Jesus. For instance, I wrote down some questions. Pastor Christian and I were, were talking about this this week. So I said, hey, help me write some things down about what Christians think about in, in even our region. So, for instance, uh, do you have to be baptized? Do you have to be a church member? Do I need to regularly take communion? Do I need to take a class? Uh, some believe you may have to come to some basic doctrine uh, to make a conscious decision, and don't let there be any emotion in that. Uh, you need to be baptized, and once you got that, then you can never lose your salvation no matter what. And then some will say, well, you need to be baptized, maybe even re-baptized in Jesus' name only. You need to speak in tongues. You need to follow these dress codes and all these conduct to make your holiness approved by God. And you can even go beyond that. And in many church traditions, liberal and conservative, uh, that many of them will measure our salvation by a diversity of rules. For instance, uh, approved hairstyles, uh, proper attire. Maybe you have to have a suit and tie on. Uh, forsaking alcohol, rejecting tattoos and piercings. Don't listen to much more. And no matter how strict and are not strict you are in any of those rules, some people say, well, you can do whatever you want to do so long as you have been baptized and you confess this. And, and on both camps, both are trusting in works of man, and that's called Pharisaism. That's called legalism. That's called man-centered religion. And that's the, one of the biggest problems we unknowingly, and oftentimes we don't even know we're doing it, that we face in the church today. And whether we are conservative or liberal in what list of rules we follow or what we're trusting in, lifeless religion can easily be the norm for so many Christians. We can get in the rut and the routine of lifeless religion. So I want to fight the Pharisee a little bit today. You know, the Pharisees were this strict Jewish sect that Jesus fought against, that the early church fought against, and they were all about building traditions around them, the law of God, focusing on that ceremonial part. And Jesus said, even rejecting, they've hold to the traditions of men rejecting the very law of God, that they were whitewashed tombs. They were, looked all pretty on the outside, but on all that religion, you were really dead on the inside. And, and that Pharisee sect still exists today, even in the best denominations, the best churches, even with the best Christians. It's something that we all fight, myself included. And uh, I wanted to start off to say, you know, hello, my name is Heath Karras. I'm a recovering Pharisee. It's been, you know, so many days since my last confession. You know, I wanted to kind of start that way because I grew up in church. I know what it's like to be religious. I lived under, I remember playing Hot Wheels under the pew. I remember uh, being at revival services when my parents and the, the adults, it was two or three hours into a Sunday night service, and we were playing Hot Wheels and, and crawling and rolling. I mean, we would roll from the front pew to the back pew, and the, and the adults would all be at the front doing whatever their Holy Ghost stuff, and we would just be running around. I've grown up in this. I know how to fake it. I know how to do it. But I want to reject and fight the Pharisee. You see, it's any time we trust in man's work to help God's work. To be a Pharisee is to succumb to doing outside rules to measure an inside change. 
And whether it's my baptism, my church membership, the appearance of how moral I look or act, it's the works of man that can uh, often make a Pharisee feel secure in their salvation. And that's one thing I want to fight, is a man-qualifying religion, a man-qualifying Christianity. You see, it's no longer difficult to turn to God. God did the difficult part when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and fulfill the law that was against you. And today, what He has given us is a joy-filled salvation. He's given you a freedom that allows you to obey God's Word and His law. It's a freedom that produces right living in itself. And so I no longer need a religious man in my life to help me have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. I don't need a religious man in my relationship with Jesus. I have a plan of salvation. I have a proof of salvation, and there are practices of that salvation. I want to talk to you about plan, the proof, and the practices on fighting Pharisees. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, if you're there, somebody say amen. I'm going to read the New Living today because I think it kind of flows a little bit better uh, in this text. So let's, let me give you the background of get us to the point where we're at in Acts 15. So we're fighting Pharisees. So in the early church in Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit began to immerse believers, first with Jews, then to Samaritans, which were like half Jews, and then even to Gentiles. Peter saw that in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Cornelius was this uh, Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. And simply in his home, his whole household, as Peter began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, he and his household believed before the sermon was even finished, they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues and prophesy. And Peter said to all of his friends, he said, my gosh, we didn't even get the chance to baptize them. They never got circumcised or did any religious rites or rituals or ceremonies. They didn't go through all the process that we would normally go through. God must have approved to them simply by faith. They just believed, and then they received. That was it. So God was qualifying those He called. And so that began to happen. And Paul and Barnabas began to see this. This is a new thing in the early church. They're like, oh my gosh, Gentiles, pagans, people who never did anything to look right, act right, never changed their outside appearance, they didn't even do anything to what we thought uh, would be all the process of religion. And they simply began to receive the Holy Spirit with much evidence. Signs and wonders were happening, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, all kinds of stuff was happening, even in these Gentile churches. And Paul was reporting this. But in 49 A.D., just a few years after Jesus rose from the dead, a dispute arose, and we have that here in Acts 15. So let's read. So while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, so this is that Gentile church, okay? This is the church that Paul and Barnabas were teaching and prophesying at, and it was mostly made of Gentiles. And some men from Judea, okay, uh, where uh, Jerusalem is, arrived and began to teach the believers in Paul's church. And they said, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. They argued stringently. They argued zealously. Paul and Barnabas began to fight them on this one thing. Finally, the church got so full of it, they decided to send Barnabas and uh, Paul to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this one question. So the church sent delegates to Jerusalem. They stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit those believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy. Somebody say joy. joy. 
Man, it's a joyous thing to come to Jesus that the Gentiles too were being converted. And they arrived in Jerusalem, and Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up. Note that. What sect did they belong to? The sect of the Pharisees. They stood up and they began to say, All right, as they're reporting, these guys stand up. The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. He said, Brothers, you all know that God chose me among you a long time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. And God knows people's hearts. Somebody say amen to that. God knows people's hearts, and He confirmed that He accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did even to us, even to us the Jews. And He said, verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them, for He cleansed their hearts through what? Faith. He cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening Gentiles with believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were even able to bear? In verse 11, here we end. We believe that we are all saved the same way. Here it is. By the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Somebody say amen. We are all the saved the same way. By the undeserved grace, I don't care if you're Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Calvinist, Arminian, you are all saved the same way by the undeserved favor of God through Jesus Christ. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, God must approve of you. If He called you, He'll qualify you. And it's simply the undeserved favor of God through Jesus Christ and the reception of the Holy Spirit. And these, these Pharisaic Jews, okay, so they're Christians. They say some of the believers of the sect of the Pharisees, which I thought was interesting. Their secret sect of this church was Christians who had the spiritual, let's say, DNA of religious people. You ever met religious people in a church before? If you've been in church a while, they're, you know, brother, I'm better than you, and sister, say something about you. You know, like those kind of people, right? And so there's this sect of Pharisees who've come to the church with their old traditions and trying to put a yoke, Peter says, onto new converts. And they said, they didn't argue, here, they didn't argue that they weren't saved, that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you something, all these Gentiles in this day, in the Acts, Everybody who received the Holy Spirit, almost every account we see, had some manifestation of the Spirit. They received, and they said, hey, they got the same Holy Spirit that we got on the same day of Pentecost. Man, when we spoke in tongues and prophesied and all this kind of crazy stuff happened, that's what happens when they believe, and God's given this to them as a sign that we know they got it. All right? And so he says, they got it. But these Pharisees say, okay, well, that's great. I'm glad you got saved. I'm glad you spoke in tongues. I'm glad you got it. But you need to do this, too. You really need to do X, Y, and Z if you really want to be sure and make the rapture. I'm not debating that God didn't speak in tongues and blah, blah, blah. You know, that you didn't speak in tongues and have a moment with God and that you didn't really mean it. But if you really want to be saved, you need to do this with your hair, this with your clothes, this with your service times, how many times you should go to church, how many times you should pray, how much money you should give, what you should look like, how you should act, and what you should do. If you do all those things and because God did something in you, you'll be sure to make the rapture. That argument has been fighting the church since 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to tell you something. It said in a few verses, it said, verse 6, And the elders met together to what? Resolve this 
issue. I'm going to tell you something. This argument, this battle has already been won. This, result, this has already been resolved. He says, we've only been saved by grace through faith. That's it. That's it. You see, unless you meet a requirement, unless you do this or that, and Paul would in, end up from this text, he would write this whole epistle called the Epistle to Galatians. If you read the book of Galatians, you'll get a better insight of right this morning. He says, this is a different gospel, Galatians 1.8. I'm telling you, this is a different gospel. So what's the real gospel? What's God's plan? What's our proof? What practices should we do? Let's go quickly. We won't have much time today, but let me tell you, number one, there's a plan. There's a plan. There was a plan that you would be adopted by God, a plan that God would adopt the Gentile nations. You see, uh, what makes someone a kid? Now, there's biology, there's the DNA, but there's also love. You see, uh, think about adoptive parents. Just because you fathered a child doesn't mean you're a dad, right? We know this. Doesn't make you, you can have a biological kids all over the world, but you're not a dad. Because dads love their kids, they're there for their kids. And just because an adoptive parent signs something at the courthouse, that's really just the beginning. That's the legal declaration that they have become your child. But there's a relationship that has to be fostered. Why? Because that relationship is based on two things love and trust. That new parent. That adoptive parent takes that child in, and the courts have granted it by law. That kid is theirs. But what do they do? They begin to affirm them, love them, speak good things over them. They provide a roof over their head. They show them how much they love for them. And then what happens? That child comes to believe that no matter who they were, who they are now is better. And who they are now is what this person speaks of them. And they begin to reject what they felt about themselves before to receive something that this love has been given to them, right? They begin to believe the love. And then by willful choice of that love, they begin to trust and obey that parent. That was not their parent, but because of love, grace, unmerited favor, sacrifice, provision given for that child, that child says, this is my new mom and dad. I love them. I trust them. I choose to obey their voice. That is what God has done for you. There has been a promise plan, and the story of Abraham proves it from the beginning of time that God would always choose to bring the Gentiles in by faith. That's us. But see, there was this law against us, 600 laws that kept us from the holiness of God. The courts didn't want this to happen. We were orphaned, abandoned, without a father, without a home. We were alien strangers, Paul said. We were excluded from the life that's in God, and we were destined without hope in this world. That's what Ephesians says. But Paul says this, but at the right time, the grace of God appeared to all men. Man, at the right moment, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what happened? Christ went into that courtroom. He fulfilled that law. He paid the debt. He said, that's my kid. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get them their mind. That's grace. He paid the price to purchase you. He did what he had to do on the cross by fulfilling the law that was against you. You were orphaned, but now you are the people of God. He is. You are who he says you are. That's grace. He was holy for you. He fulfilled it for you. He says, I'm fully accepting you as you are. Have you done anything to deserve this? No. Did you do anything to become his kid? No. He did it for you. That's grace. Undeserved favor. But now my part comes in. Faith. You see, faith is the qualifier. He says, we're saved through grace 
But we're also, Ephesians says, you are saved uh, through faith, by grace, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. This is a gift. See, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness because of his faith. He did nothing but trust in the word of God. Abraham left all he had to follow the word of God by faith. And that's the call of every believer. Who's the word of God? Jesus. Jesus is the word. And Abraham left all he had to sell out to follow the word of God. God gave him a promise, an undeserved favor. He says, Abraham, I'm calling you. You'll be a father of many. I'm going to do great things to you. Just believe what I say about you. Abraham, yes, God, I believe your word. I'll follow you anywhere you say. And that's what a Christian does. Just like he purchased us by grace, by faith I begin to see, man, I trust this God who purchased me. I trust this God who says that he loves me. So no matter what I go through, I'll hear his voice. I choose to obey it because I believe in who he is and what he's done for me. That's faith. It's simply that. It's based on relationship. It's not based on a code of conduct or rules. When that adoptive parent may come in, they may say, this is how we handle things at our house. But that's not anything to do with their relationship. That's just how they behave at home, right? That works. That keeps the relationship in good motion, right? But faith, faith is an abiding, remaining relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just remain in me, abide in me. Minos in Greek, it means to have an intimate relationship with him. That's all this heavenly father asks of you. Trust me when I say you are. Trust me when I tell you what to do. That's the grace of God for you. It's faith in that word, faith. How many know we have a plan? We are saved by grace through faith. You're already accepted. Just trust what God is telling you to do. That's grace. Well, there's proof as well. How do you know God approves of you? Well, I just told you he proved it when he sent his son in grace to purchase you. Well, but Pastor Heath, shouldn't there be things in our life to prove this? Okay, well, yes. How do you, how do you know God approves of you? Well, there's two types of parents. <laughs> there's one parent that at a birthday party says, Hey, kid, congratulations. You were born today. You're mine. That's good enough for you. Right? How many, I hope we don't have those parents in the room. The other parent says, hey, good morning, it's your birthday, happy birthday, and then they have a party and they throw some gifts, right? How many of you know that's a better parent? Okay, right? The second parent. God is like the second parent. He loves to give gifts. He loves to celebrate the birth of his children. He's a good heavenly father. Just ask the prodigal son. God likes to party. I'm just saying it. God likes to party. Then in that, in that day, his son came home. There was dancing and music and joy. Church should be a lively place. This is a tag. Church should be somewhere excited to be because God likes to party. He likes people being home. He celebrates his kids. He loves giving gifts to his kids. He loves spending time with his kids. Church is not a funeral party. It's a party. All right? Church should be a party. It's a party every week. It's a party every time you go into the presence of God. It's a great day to be God's kid. Come on. He gives gifts to his kids. But my, I mean, we just had Ari's uh, ninth birthday just the other day. That party was not her birth. She was born years ago. That gift has nothing to do with her deserving or earning my favor. I freely give gifts because I love that she's my daughter. I love to give gifts to her because she's my kid. Is the gift the birth? No. Is the gift anything to do with her earning it or having been? No, it's, it's, I'm just celebrating her. 
I love to give gifts. God loves to give gifts to his kids, but the gift is not the birth. And some denominations confuse this. They say, oh, this gift is a proof that you're this, that you're saved, that you're born. No, they were born years ago, but God loves gifts. And then there's other denominations that say, ah, oh, it's good enough to just be born. Ah, no gifts, no parties, no gifts. God loves gifts. He loves his kids. And I'm the kind of kid, if somebody bought me a gift, I'm going to open it. Okay? Now, some of y'all might get a birthday and just let all the gifts, you know what? It's just good enough to be saved and be, you know, I'm good enough to just be God's kid. Man, if he purchased it, I want it. I want it. But that's not my birth. That's not what qualified me. That's not what I'm saved by. Those are just gifts. You're confusing it. There's a birth and there's the gift day, all right? There's a promise that he said, I'll put my spirit within them in Ezekiel 36. The prophets foretold of a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come to you after he ascended. He said on the day of uh, Pentecost, he said, there's going to be this power come into you. There's a promise. This promise is for you. And those who have the Holy Spirit in your life, you are born again. You are alive with Christ. You have a new spiritual DNA. You are approved by God, and you simply receive new life by faith. No religious work is required to receive what God has gifted you with. You just be born of God. That's what happened with Cornelius and his family. He believed, he received, because God qualified him. Even in Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 3, 2, I think it's such a powerful verse for fighting Pharisees. It says, the only thing I want to find out from you is did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you did a bunch of religious stuff? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit when you simply believed by God in faith? You see, there's a promise, and it only comes with faith. But there's proof, too. See, the proof of a true Christian is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Peter said, because these guys in Cornelius' home, he says, they, they believed. I don't know how to tell you if they're saved or not. I just can tell you that they got the same Holy Spirit that we got when we were on the day of Pentecost. So this must mean that God approves of them. And Paul said the same thing. Guys, everywhere I go around the world, there's not religious people. They're not putting God in a box. There's no denominations. There's no quabbling over how God gives things. So Paul says, I just simply preach the gospel, and everywhere I go, these the Gentiles, they're receiving the Holy Spirit just like we did on the day of Pentecost. It's not the gift. They just received all the gift when they got born again. Are you with me this morning? We're not qualifying people by gifts, but the gifts are available to everyone who is born of God. But the gift is not the birth. Are you with me? Some people look at all the gifts they got and say, oh, they must, and that's, maybe they're, they're born of God because they have gifts, but just because they hadn't opened the package yet doesn't mean they're not born of God. They just have to have faith to receive it. See, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians said, is God's proof that you belong to Him. It's a guarantee. When God's DNA is in my heart, when God, the Holy Spirit, comes in me, I can, I can know this is a foretaste of heaven. This is a proof that His presence is with me. And if He's put His presence with me, I'll gain His presence in eternity. I know that if the Holy Spirit is in me, then the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise me from the dead. That's a guarantee. That's a seal. I have proof. You shouldn't be going through your Christian life wondering if you're saved or not. You should know. 
Don't trust in a denomination or a baptism or a certificate or a Bible class or some doctrine or some baptismal tank or what some pastor said or didn't say over you in a tank. You trust in the presence of God being activated in your life. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are God's kid. And no one can tell you that but you. You. You have to know there's something living on the inside of me that was not there before. There's a seal. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you don't belong to God. You're not God's kid. He gives the Holy Spirit to all of His kids. You see, the measure of that birthday, how we do church, the measure of that gift, is not the measure of God's love for us or our love for Him. That gift is just a gift. And I don't look at that and say, well, man, you know, how many gifts this person has versus that person has and what they're doing versus... No, no, no. We're all God's kids. God loves you. And the proof of that love is He's given you the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes many gifts. God loves to give gifts. I think sometimes we prefer, though, this man-controlled and man-measured religion because the gifts can scare us because maybe that's not something we've been brought up in or comfortable with. It's easier to go to things I can be control of and measure. That's really not how our relationship with God works because I know that God is a good father and he doesn't give bad gifts. I don't hide fireworks in my kids' birthday presents. I don't put, that's what Jesus said, he don't put snakes and scorpions in your gifts and your birthday. You ask for good things, he gives you good things. Some of y'all might have problems. You know, I don't know what your Christmases look like at your family. But in God's house, in God's family, he gives good things. So if I trust him and who he is, I freely receive it. So maybe the issue is not on a gift versus not gift thing. It's on a do you trust God? Are you freely receiving all that he's purchased for you? You see, there's a power that comes with many of these gifts as the works of the flesh, the Bible says, are powerless to overcome sin. And what we need, though, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in the last days, be careful. There's a powerless gospel. Men become lovers of pleasure, and they hold to a form of godliness, though they deny its power. That's Pharisaic Christianity. They never have true power over sin. They're powerless to witness, and they don't see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their life because they're relying on man's work versus spirit's work. We want to not trust in ceremony. We want to trust in spirit. Lastly is this, is practice. Practice. How can you be sure, Pastor Heath, though, that we're Christians if we... Uh, what, should, what, I mean, what, don't we need rules? Don't we need to look or act like it? I mean, don't we need to act like it and look like it? Yeah, you will if you have the Holy Spirit. Let me wrap it up with this. Practices. This is the, probably the biggest debate of all of them. Practices. I love what, this is probably the verse I'll give you with, is Titus 2.11. It says, the grace of God, Paul says, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. It's the grace of God, the, the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. It's grace is better than guilt. Guilt lasts for a little while, but grace lasts for a lifetime. Grace is what's going to get me up in the morning. Grace is what's going to get me back up if I fall down. Not guilt. Guilt will kind of make me feel bad, and I'll go, okay, i got to try harder. But grace, that undeserved favor, makes me want to love God more, makes me want to serve God more, makes me want to go to church more, want to pray more, want to give more, want to serve more, because grace is better than guilt. 
And you may grow up in a guilt-centered religion. Let me tell you something. Taste of the ice cream of grace. It's so much better. So much better. You see, in a wedding, I use this a lot in our New Believer stuff. In a wedding, we don't come up to the groom and say, do you promise, the wife, do you promise to never curse each other, never cheat on each other, never uh, fail to do the dishes, never leave your underwear on the floor, never go anywhere without your wife's permission. No, we don't say all of this stuff. We say, I do. I promise to love you, to death do us part, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. I do choose you. I choose to love you. I choose to pursue you. I choose to want you. I choose to seek you and put you first. And that is New Testament Christianity. You see, I don't have to tell you all the don'ts because it's inside all the do's. You focus on the do's, you won't, don't, you don't, don't the don'ts. Okay, okay, I don't know how that works. But you don't do the don'ts, okay? Do the do's. If you pursue God's presence, you won't pursue worldly pleasure. If you pursue God's presence, you won't pursue anything less for your life. I won't be caught up in all this other junk because I'll be so focused on pursuing Him. I'm not cheating on my wife because I'm pursuing her. That's how that works. You keep your eyes focused on what is yours and what, who you're going to be with. That's, man, that's, that's my bride. That's what my focus is. So I'm not focused on other women. If you're not focused on anything else, be focused on God. Be focused on God. You see, there's a practice here. It's not rules. It's relationship. I pursue His presence. I pursue pleasing God. You see, rules now are replaced by the rule of the Holy Spirit in our life. Not religious standards, because Christ becomes my standard. He's paid the price, but now I just pursue Him. He died for love, so I died to myself to love Him. It's this marriage that I have with Him. I don't have to have it all written down. Let me give you an example. If you come to my house, if you come to my house, I don't have this list. <laughs> I don't have this list for you to come over. No belly shirts, no baseball caps, no this, no that, no this, no that. You know, please have clothes on. No flip-flops. I don't have this whole list for you to get into my house. I don't care. I'm glad you're there. Come in. But let me tell you something. If you come in covered in mud and you got baseball cleats on covered in mud and you sit on my brand new couch, we're probably going to have some talking, right? And nobody has, let me tell you something, no one's ever done that. Why? Why has no one ever come, of all the people in this church who's been to my house, how come no one has ever come covered in deer blood from the first day of deer seed and sit on my couch? Why? They respect me and my home. They love me. They know what would be displeasing to me because they have relationship with me and they care about my home. The Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit where God's presence dwells. And so if you care about your body, it's because you care about the person who lives there. I don't have to have a list of rules about what to do and not to do. I have relationship with the homeowner. And that relationship with the homeowner says this is how I should treat myself. This is how I should treat her. Young men, how you treat that woman is because you understand she's a temple of God. Young men, how you treat that lady, it's because she's a temple of God. So young person, how you treat yourself, it's because you treat the temple of God with respect, with honor, with love. I don't have to have a list. In fact, in this, at the end of this chapter, when they get to this point, they say, well, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to not put such a heavy burden on you, but just to give you a few things. Don't drink blood, get out of pagan practices, and don't be sexually immoral. What does that mean? It means there's some common sense things that we come out of this place because of who we are. 
We don't get into pagan idolatry and we don't get into pagan immorality because you have been purchased with a price. They say, I don't have a list of rules for all that, but you'll know it when you see it. And if you come inside your head, let me say something. My kids, they're mine. I often have to remind them, no shoes on the couch. Guess what? I'm patient with that because I know they're immature. But I know that maturity will come. I know that young Christians are going to have immaturity problems. They're still God's kid. And God, the Holy Spirit, will begin to tell them, shoes off the couch. Come in with your shoes wiped off. Wash your hands before dinner. He'll handle that. And we got good loving Christians in this place, good aunts and uncles who'll help us along the way. Has nothing to do whether or not they're God's kid. God's patient with that. And we expect that as you grow up in God's house, there'll be, there'll be maturity along the way. If you're 50 years old still putting your feet on the couch that are dirty, man, we probably need to go back to something. Right? There's a lack of respect for God's house. That's the practice. You want it all that together? You know what all that sums up? Relationship. Relationship. How I treat you is because I'm in relationship with you. When we become friends, you don't say, here's my friend code. Point A, to be my friend is this. Point B, to be my friend is this. No. We grow together and figure out one another in relationship, and we grow in love and respect. That's God, the Holy Spirit, in you. Much can be said here, but a counterfeit Christianity says this. You should feel better because you stopped drinking, you turned off secular music, you were baptized, you became a church member, you started tithing, you started dressing modestly, you spoke in tongues, you joined the worship team and started volunteering. You see, but that's a counterfeit Christianity because if you're trusting in anything but your relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. Paul says don't add anything to Christ. Don't add anything to Christ. It's Christ plus nothing. Grace, faith plus nothing. The Holy Spirit is the rule in your relationship with God. And the best practice we can have as Christians is practicing being in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The best practice you can have in your Christian life is practicing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to fight the Pharisee. I want to remove the religious man from my relationship with God. I want to believe in the plan of God that it's by grace through faith alone that we're saved. I want to have the proof, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I want to receive all the gifts God has for me. And the gifts don't qualify me, and the gifts are no measure of my salvation, but I just believe God loves to give gifts. He loves to spend time with His children and give them good things. So why do I reject it? Why don't I open and receive all that God has for me? And the best practice you can do in your life is practicing being in the presence of God. To allow your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. To spend time with God, to get to know what He likes and He dislikes. To have respect for yourself and for others. To put away childish things, perhaps, and to grow up into maturity. Grow up in the presence of God. Get in deeper relationship with your Father who purchased you when you were an orphan and alone. He's canceled the code against you. He's brought you near. He's paid the price for you. 
He calls you worthy. He calls you son and daughter. Let's just enjoy this relationship of freedom we have in Jesus Christ. This is the good news.